people just go through like they're like zombies after people die for their whole rest of their lives. And I want to show people that you don't have to live like that. Like it, it's a choice. Like you don't need your life to be over when someone dies. Whitney, thank you again for being here. Just let's get the ball the ball started. I'm excited to hear more about your story. I only know a very little bit, you know, the the bullet points, I suppose, from what I saw on your page. But I do love what you're doing and kind of spreading awareness of your own story. And it seems like what you're doing will help a lot of people. So it's an honor to have you on the show. I just want to thank you again. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited for for this conversation today. Me too. So I'm sure you told the story a million times. Yeah, I'd rather you, you know, kind of get the ball rolling on however you wanted to start and who we're remembering today. Sure. Uh, so I talk a lot about grief and death and trauma, and I did not do that before my late husband passed away. And his name, I refer to him in the present tense because it's so weird for me to say was, but um, his name is Ryan. And I guess I can kind of start from when we met because, uh, that's kind of when this all starts here. So I was in my second year of law school at Villanova Law, and Ryan was in the police academy with my sister. This was 2012, so March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, 2012. And I was very much not into dating. I had just gotten out of a relationship and was like, I'm going to focus on my studies. I was out of the party scene after four years at Syracuse. So I was very focused on just being a law student, doing my thing, living at home. And my sister invited me out to the bars in Maniac, which are right outside Philadelphia. And I was like, I don't really want to go. I don't want to do my hair and makeup and like go to a bar with all these drunk people. Like I don't, that doesn't sound like a good time to me. And uh, she made me get ready. And I walked downstairs in my kitchen is Ryan. And we kind of just like met eyes. And it's weird to say like people, some people believe in love at first sight, and some people don't. And I experienced it. So I believe in it. And we pretty much were just inseparable since that point. And we got engaged three months after our meeting. And then we would have gotten married like right away, but everyone was like, slow, please slow down, (laughs) please slow down. I mean, we were like 24 and 25 years old. So we were so young. We were just super in love and we were just sure that we wanted to spend our lives together. So it was everybody else that we were doing that for. But we waited till October 12, 2013 and uh, we were married. And obviously, you know, in every relationship, it's never perfect, but we just clicked. Like he was so funny. He had the best personality, very charming and so smart, even though, you know, he was also extremely stubborn and I'm kind of stubborn too. So we would like kind of bat heads in that way. But uh, we just had this really amazing relationship and we were so young when we met. So we had nothing. We didn't have money. We lived in like this 700, 800, hundred square foot apartment when we were kind of growing our careers. I am a lawyer. So after I finished law school, I started out um, at a firm. So, you know, we were really just starting out from the bottom, both of us and Ryan got 
uh, position at a local police department, um, Hatboro Police Department. And so we're both starting our lives together and we are married for four years before having our first child. So we wanted to give ourselves some time to, you know, have fun as a married couple. We didn't feel the rush to, to have to start our family right away. Um, and we had our son Jackson, who will be five uh, this Monday. And we were kind of just like getting into our groove. Um, Ryan became a canine officer. He started the first canine program at his department. And um, we had Louie, who was his uh, canine partner. And he, Ryan was so ambitious. He wanted to be the best that he could be, like the best canine officer. And he just worked constantly all the time like outside with the dog with drug work they do searching for objects like so you know in real life if they need to find a gun or a person or something it was just constant he was always in the yard you know doing work with Louie and you know Louie became part of our family and pretty much grew up with Jackson because they are a month apart in age so you know we were just kind of living this very idea like idyllic life um, in the suburbs. And I was so content. Um, I, you know, I didn't love being a lawyer, but I was good at it. It was stable. And for me, being able to kind of support Ryan and his dreams, because the, his dreams was to be, be a canine officer. So I kind of was like, you know, you do your thing, you live out your dream, like, maybe I'll have that later. But like, for now, I'm happy just supporting you. And like, seeing you live out this dream that you've always had as like a little boy. So that was really amazing. And then Mother's Day 2021. So May 2021, I found out I was pregnant with our second son. Uh, And we were just really excited because we wanted to give Jack a brother. Uh, We waited again, like another three or four years to have another baby. And we were just super excited. And then... October 12th, we celebrated our eight-year wedding anniversary, and it was just a regular day. We went to have an ultrasound uh, for our son, Leo, because I thought that would be fun to to do that um, on our anniversary. And then 48 hours later, uh, my husband had a severe reaction to a bee sting with no prior reaction or allergic reaction to bees, went into cardiac arrest on our porch and he could not be revived for 20 minutes and he sustained an anoxic brain injury. So for people that don't know what that is, that's basically when your your brain is deprived of oxygen for a period of time. And when that happens, your brain basically dies and parts of it die and don't work anymore. And he was able to be revived. So he was physically alive, but his brain was so damaged he was in the ICU at Penn Presbyterian in Philadelphia for seven to eight weeks. Uh, we wanted to give him the best chance possible to potentially rehab his brain because with the brain, we're told, we are told, you know, there isn't like a specific prognosis because the brain is so mysterious and it can heal like miraculously. So you don't really know. Um, they couldn't tell us if it was impossible or not, like with other parts of the body when when things go wrong. And he was 35 years old. So I couldn't just like take him off the ventilator and let him die then. I needed to see if he would rally and if he would fight because of who he was. And, you know, they do studies on people with brain injuries and, 
you know, people with these like stubborn personalities, they, they sometimes do better, um, depending upon the situation. So I'm like, he will fight as, as much as he can. And I want to give him that shot. So, I mean, he was a miracle for coming back after 20 minutes. That is so rare. It's like 10% or less come back after cardiac arrest. And he was a miracle because he got off the ventilator. He like weaned himself off the ventilator and they were able to put a trach in, which instead of having a tube down your throat is they make an incision in your throat so you can breathe through that um, because of the brain injury they need to control the airway just in case um, they can't just like have you off of the machines because if something happens they want to be able to keep that airway open and also when you have a brain injury you can't like us we take we take for granted that we can swallow and do all these things without thinking you can't do that when you have a brain injury so you can aspirate and there are other complications that happen when when you have a brain injury like that and then he did also get a G-tube so he could get nutrition right into his stomach because he couldn't eat. So we were in the ICU for seven weeks and he was deemed stable enough to try to go to um, a brain rehab in Elkins Park, Pennsylvania called, called Moss Rehab. And, you know, we were told this is where miracles happen and people get better. So, you know, we, we hope for a miracle still. Um, even though he was in a what's called a disordered state of consciousness. He was in a coma when he first had his injury, but then he was having sleep and awake cycles, but he was not aware of his surroundings. So kind of like a vegetative state with like opening your and closing your eyes, but not knowing what is going on around you. Uh, so he was discharged from I- the ICU. And then he got really, he was at Moss Rehab and the program is so intense. He couldn't manage his secretions through his trach and he was aspirating and getting pneumonias and all of these really nasty bugs um, from not being able to control that. Uh, And he had to be transferred out of rehab and go to, it's like a step down from an ICU in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. It's an acute care program to, to get him strong enough physically to be able to do what he was supposed to do in rehab. So he went there and he was getting better on top of everything. I'm pregnant during this time. So I was 26 weeks pregnant when Ryan's accident happened. So at this point, I'm like almost ready to give birth. It's like December 2021 or 22. And I get COVID like right before I'm like going to give birth. And we did the right thing. And we and this was when Omicron was really bad because this was last uh, winter. and. So they had, you know, a lot of COVID policies and procedures, and we had to navigate that as well as a family, which was so hard on top of everything else. So we did the right thing. And we told them I had COVID and they locked Ryan down for two weeks and he couldn't see anybody. And if, you know, if you're not aware of people with brain injuries, they need constant stimulation. They need music. They need people talking to them. They need people touching them. Um, and he didn't test positive for COVID. He never got it. And they still locked him down for two weeks. Then we begged them to have us be like the healthy family members be able to see him. And they refused to do that. They even had his doctor at the brain rehab call and tell them that it would cause more harm to have him isolated than like any harm from COVID since he was testing negative. So he wouldn't expose anybody and he didn't have it. And they still said no. 
And during that time period when he was on lockdown, I gave birth to our second son. And then 10 days postpartum, we were finally able to see him and we drove, it was an hour away, an hour away. And I drove to go see him and I had a C-section. So I was like high on Percocet. And um, my mother-in-law and sister-in-law stayed in the car with the baby, like after I was done, like feeding him. And I went up to see Ryan for the first time in two weeks, like after giving birth to our child. And I could like barely walk because I was still healing. And then finally, he was able to go back to rehab. And during that time period, he was not getting better mentally. Um, We think he really declined during that two week time period where he was on lockdown. You know, I describe it in my book. I felt like before the lockdown, he had like a light around him, like he was still fighting. And he was responding to some commands like my voice, like he could he was like moving his arm and his like hand to command. And then after his lockdown, he stopped responding to any commands. Um, I felt like when I visited him for the first time after having Le- my son Leo and his lockdown, that that light kind of went out. Like he just had stopped fighting and went somewhere else. Um, like he was done. And I felt that. Um, but he was physically able to return the rehab. And even though I kind of knew in my gut, like, he would never be coming home and like how this story would end. I still wanted him to go to rehab and, you know, I still hope for a miracle. I think we all did. And it became clear in February of last year after he had some scans done, new scans of his brain and they did, it was like a Hail Mary like experiment. So people, some people that take Ambien who are in a disordered state of consciousness, they come out of, out of it using Ambien. So we did an Ambien trial and nothing happened. And that was kind of like the last stitch effort to get him like a little bit better to see some improvement to give us some hope that maybe he should go home and still rehab, but nothing. So we decided as a family that Ryan would not want to live like he was living. He was basically a vegetable, like he was just a body. He had no idea what was going on. He he could barely he couldn't move any of his body parts couldn't talk couldn't feel like he'd no emotion so and i know from being his wife and being together for 10 years at that point like he would never want to live that way um and his mom knew that and his sister knew that so as a family like the three of us we decided that the best thing for him was to uh withdraw all life sustaining thing. So hydration and food and let him pass. So he was put on hospice and on our 10 year anniversary of meeting March 17, 2022. And he died 22 days later on April 7th, 2022. Oh, man, there's a, there's, um, there's a lot there. And, and I, I didn't realize it was that recent. You know, that's that's not a lot of time that has gone by considering, you know, it's less than a year. Mm-hmm. So what, so for what I'm taking from a lot of the, you know, the, the, your descriptive words and when you're saying miracle, Hail Mary, that clearly the odds were against him, but you still maintained hope. Mm-hmm. What is that, what is that process for you? Because I feel like it's such a balancing act to, you know, know that the the odds are against him, but also maintain that hope. So do you recall what conversations you were having in your own head to kind of manage that 
Does that make sense? Yeah, that's, you know, that's so hard because I, I think for me, I'm a very, I, I've always been a very spiritual person. I've been, always been very intuitive. I've always like believed that, you know, the veil is thin in terms of people on the other side and people who have passed. And, you know, I feel like I have energy or things or whatever that have guided me my whole life. And like, I, even before Ryan's accident, like I, I asked for guidance all the time and I would always get signs and see like angel numbers want like ones a lot. So for me, like that faith kind of carried through into after Ryan had his accident and, you know, I thought I was like seeing signs that he would get better in terms of like, just like what, like all these ones I kept seeing and signs that like of, of us, like a fox is very, um, I would always see foxes. Like when we had big decisions as a a family, like that was just like one of our things that like we saw. So I tried to keep the faith, but then it is hard to balance that with the science. And I think for me, that's why I decided at first not to just take him off the ventilator in the ICU because I wanted him like Ryan's spirit, whatever that was left in there, like for him to kind of, I don't think that he had a choice. I think that he was meant to, I don't know if he was meant to die on October 14th. I think he was honestly. And I think because of who Ryan was and like how powerful he was as a person, like he was like, fuck no, like (laughs) I'm not going, like I can't leave. Like I got to try to like be there for my wife and kids. And I think he didn't have a choice. So for me, it, it is hard. That balance is hard, but I think I gave him, I had faith to give him a chance. And then when I knew that kind of like the science like outweighed what was right for him because he was suffering if people don't realize like when you have a brain injury and you're in bed there's so many things like you get you get bed sores you get all these infections you get contractures in your limbs because you're not moving um he got this really weird bone growth like in his hips and in his knees from the brain injury which happens a lot so he if he like in rehab if he was trying to straighten out one of his limbs like he would shake and like he would see he was in pain. So for me, I just kind of had to take over and be like, okay, I had faith that we had done everything. So the faith wasn't that he was going to get better. It was that we did everything and his destiny was not supposed to be here anymore. Well, I love that, you know, understanding who your husband was and he's a fighter and he sounds very strong that you continued that, you know, you did what you can do. And it sounded like you and your family fought alongside of him as it sounds like he was doing as well. So I think that's, you know, it's very admirable. And I, I, I it sounds like you, you did everything you could, I mean, you know, so what, mm-hmm. what, what do you remember from, you know, maybe the, the beginning after he passed, like what was amongst everything? Cause you had, you had so much on your plate. You just gave birth, there COVID going on there. You have, you're balancing so much already. What was the loaded question perhaps, but what was the biggest challenge for you? What do you remember the most emotions wise in that, in that beginning phase of the grieving process? Like what did, what did you, what did you feel? Gosh, that's such a, that is such a loaded question because I had been grieving I actually made a post. I wrote about it last night. Um, I had been grieving Ryan since October 14th. Like that to me is when he died. So it wasn't like a sudden it was like I experienced two deaths, like his sudden death in October and then his physical death in April. 
so I'd already been going through that roller coaster of grief. And um, by the time that he died, I was so relieved and I felt at peace because I knew that he, we had tried everything. He had tried everything. Like I, I know that if he had a choice, he would be here, but he wasn't given that choice. And I felt at peace that he was no longer suffering or trapped in a body that he couldn't use anymore or a mind that was sick. And I, you know, going back to faith, like I have faith that I will see him again and that I'm here for a reason. And I'm here to like share his story for a reason because, you know, after he died, I got this like, it was almost like a calling. Like that is when I started getting kind of like these, just like something like whispering to me, like you have to write like your book, like you have to write about this. You have to tell people uh, about this experience because people need to know what it's actually like to go through this kind of event because there are people out there that need to hear it because they feel alone. And that's how I felt. I felt really alone in this like really intense situation that people don't like to talk about. Um, You know, no one likes to talk about what it looks like when a 35 year old is dying on hospice. Like we don't talk about that, but those are conversations that people have behind closed doors, but no one wants to talk about it because it's not, it's not pretty. It's not in a little bow it's really sad and depressing. No one's like to talk about their mortality, especially as like a young person. So, I mean, I guess to answer your question, like I felt in my grief, I was freaking relieved. Like I was at peace that I could start my new life. And I was really focused on starting a new life for me and my boys because I know in my heart, Ryan would want me to move, like move forward. He would want me to have a beautiful life because that's how he lived his. Like he was such an example of that. And I know so many people have so such a hard time moving forward and having even finding any joy or doing anything that brings them joy because they feel that guilt. Like, well, if my person can't be here to experience this, like, why do I get to have joy? And like, what, how can I even move forward? Um, because they feel that if they are sad and in their grief, that that is how they remain that connection with the person they lost. And for me, I say the gift that Ryan left me is how he lived his life and our relationship is that he was so joyful. Like he was always laughing. He was loud, like larger than life character. And for me, when I am in my, like the best mood and laughing is when I feel the closest to him. And that's the gift that he left me. Like, I don't feel close to him when I am down in the dumps. Like, I actually feel further from him. And I think that if if more people realize that they can actually feel closer to their person that they lost through joy and love and all of these beautiful things that we have in this life, instead of the opposite, that the grieving process would be so much easier for people. And people would do more with their lives. Like people just go through like, they're like zombies after people die for their whole rest of their lives. And I want to show people that you don't have to live like that. Like it's a choice. Like you don't need your life to be over when someone dies, even if they are the closest person to you. Like you can choose to live with joy. That's such a big lesson. I know I've, I've, I've shared that conversation with a few of my guests. I couldn't agree more that it is a choice. And, you know, a lot of the, I hate to say kickback that, you know, I see 
in the community of, you know, what's going on with this podcast is that it's much easier said than done, which it is. Clearly, it's much easier said than done. But I think with that understanding, hopefully allows people to believe that they can get there because there, there really is a, a sense of guilt that maybe comes with living with joy after something so sad happened. But I love the angle and approach that you're taking by living through joy is not only how he would want you to live, but it, it kind of it commemorates him in a in such a more beautiful way. You know what I mean? Like living through joy is your way of honoring him because, you know, through the sadness, it, it, even though it keeps you, feels like it keeps you close and you're, and it's just hard to get out of because it, I feel like once you start moving on, it feels like you're not, it's like a weird stigma of like, oh, now I'm forgetting this person. I'm moving on this or that, but I, I don't, I don't think that's the case. So I, I love that you pulled that from that. I love that. That's where you're trying to deliver to people that are anyone listening that's going through it now. Cause what, what would you say to someone that is in the middle of that deep grief now that maybe is having a hard time grasping what you're saying in regards to, you know, live through joy when they're feeling so much pain? Yeah. And, you know, I make it sound so easy and it it, it, is, it isn't easy. And when I say choose joy, it's you have to show up for your life through actions before you feel joy. Like you have to kind of, I don't want to say like, um, like fake it till you make it. I hate that. But it's more like, the more that you show up for your life and it's going to feel really shitty, um, you have to practice getting back to your life. Like for me, every day after Ryan died felt really bad. Like the first few months after he died just felt horrible. But I have two little kids. Like I have a baby and I have like, I have a four-year-old. And for me, like they need needed to see a mom that smiled and that could go out and be with them and have a good time and go to events. And even though it felt really heavy, I didn't say, oh, like we can't do that. Like I said, okay, like we're doing that. And the more that I showed up for those events and like, you know, what I would have done before Ryan's accident, the more it, this, like the heaviness kind of lifted. And the more I was actually able to kind of cut through that grief and start feeling these like little glimmers of hope and light and joy. Um, And it takes a long time. It's like a fog, like you're in a fog. The fog is the grief, but you have to like keep going through it and keep going through it, even though you still can't see anything because you're practicing getting to the other side. And eventually like that fog is going to, you're going to start seeing the light eventually because people, they think, oh, well, I don't want to feel like, I don't want to feel bad. We avoid feeling bad. No one wants to feel shitty, but like sitting in bed, watching Netflix and like eating chocolate or whatever, like that's going to make you numb out. And you need to feel, you need to feel it. And by getting back to your life and feeling really shitty, you don't want to feel that way, but that's the only way you're going to get through the fog. So that's my advice. I mean, you have to feel it. Like you have to feel the shittiness and get through it. Yep. I feel the shittiness and uh, it sucks to feel the shittiness, but that's the only way to get through it. You gotta, you gotta go through the storm. Can't really go around it. Like you just said. And um, I'm interested in your your approach having, you know, a baby and a, you know, a, and a young child, you said four, correct? Yeah, he'll be five. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, four isn't as young as I used to think, you know, they're very aware of what's going on in the world. So what is that? What's the conversation with your eldest child um, in regards to what happened? 
Yeah. So when everything happened, Jack was three, which is really crazy. I mean, it's just, um, you know, it's, it will be two years in October when Ryan's accident happened. So like his little brain is still processing and it's so different than it was when he, when, um, that happened. So I'm continually having to kind of like remind him because he still feels like Ryan could come home like at any moment. Like he doesn't realize the permanency of death yet at that age. And, you know, I, we've worked with a child psychologist. So she told me that through every stage of his development, like he's going to start realizing things like one thing at a time. And I'm going to have to like reiterate what happened and in different ways. So right now, he needs very literal things. Like when I explained to him what was happening to Ryan on hospice, like daddy was going to die. Instead of saying just like daddy's going to die, I said, you know, daddy's body is going to stop working. Like he's not going to be able to dance and sing or talk or do all those things that we can do because his heart is going to stop and his brain is going to stop. And none of the things that make you be able to be, you know, a little boy, daddy's not going to have that. And that's dying. Like I had to explain it on that level to him. And that's what we were told would be the best way to explain it to him, even, you know, as adults, that for us seems like it's so hard, because it makes it harder. Because you're like, you have to be so literal that it just it hurts your heart and your soul to describe it in that way. But like, that's what was needed for him. And um, he's such a good memory. He still says, like, I miss Daddy and Louie. Like, it's like they just left yesterday. You know, so I just I try to open up the conversation to him and and say, you know, Jack, um, I miss Daddy, too. And like, you can talk to me about Daddy whenever you want. And, um, you know, and and just open up a conversation because I don't want him to think like even if I get upset if he says something that he can't talk about it because I don't want him to shut down. Because that's such another challenge. Like I said, you're juggling so much as a young mother, uh, let alone your own personal grief and everything else going on. But to have to, it's such a delicate situation, it seems like, with no experience on my own. I was a young kid, but I was much older. I was 12 and I haven't, I'm not a father, so I can't relate at all. So it's fascinating to me to see, see that approach and being unqualified in many ways to discuss this. It just seems like your approach is so it just seems like the approach. You're giving him a window to open up. You're not avoiding the conversation. You're explaining it in a very clear way, but in a way that he'll understand it. And so I, f- I wonder how many people out there that are in a similar situation may, ha- may be struggling to talk about it and maybe taking the approach of shutting down where I feel like that could have long-term effects on your child in, in a not-so-good way, you know? So it seems like, get, so it seems, if I'm understanding to kind of reiterate giving him an opportunity to be open about it, not shying away from the conversation, explaining it in a concise way that they can understand it in, in almost like an adult way, but explaining it in a way that a four or five-year-old can understand it is is the approach you're taking, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think just like my mama gut when everything was happening, you know, Jackson actually visited Ryan in the ICU and I wanted him to see Ryan in the ICU and some people were like, oh my gosh, like you're actually going to have him go in the hospital and see Ryan, like, you know, and it wasn't pretty to see, but um, it was his dad. Like I, for me to say, oh, daddy's in the hospital and he's sick. Like I needed to give him context of like what that meant. Like, where was mommy going every day? Like, why was I sad? 
for me, giving him that knowledge is better than him not knowing. And he went to the hospital and he treated Ryan, even though he couldn't talk to him or interact with him like his dad. I mean, I was so impressed. I mean, adults handle it way worse. I'm not going to lie. Like some adults just were so horrible in how they handled the situation. And my four year, my three year old at the time handled it better than a lot of adults. <laughs> that says a lot. That says a lot. But it, it, mm-hmm. I think that's such a, I think that's such a strong foundation. What you're building right there is just. I feel like it allows him to still be a kid, yet he has to grow up even faster. If that makes sense, you know. But for the better, it's only. I can only imagine as he's going to be such a strong man growing up because of the way you're doing it. So I think, like I said, I'm not a father yet, but um. I think it's really impressive the approach you're taking and you know I'm sure there's a million ways to go about it but I think it's it's powerful what you're doing and it's it's still so fresh in it so I'm curious to see how that's going to evolve because obviously you know we evolve around the grief as time goes on but another question I wanted to ask in the way that your husband passed it seemed like it was just it was so random you know it was such a it was such a, a, a not a, I don't hate to say I don't have a, a good word of describing it, but it was just so random of an occurrence. Like you said, you didn't have a history or allergic reactions or anything like that to a bee sting. What was there any? Is there or was there any bargaining around that? You know, asking the question why and trying to accept his manner of of death. For me, you know, some people would say to me, you know, do you ask why you or why Brian and all of these things? And I, it's weird. I never asked like, why, like, why us? I, I did a lot of work on myself at, like, before Ryan's accident in therapy because of, you know, family situations. And I read a lot of personal development and listen to personal development podcasts. So I am never in a, a victim mindset. Like that's just not how I operate. So for me, it was more you know, I, I think my, I'm glad I have a face system where, you know, obviously I was devastated. And if it could have been me, I would have traded that for anything, but it wasn't. Um, and I didn't get to choose that. And I just feel like after everything that our family has gone through and, and seeing death in such a visceral way, like it's, I don't know. I always describe it as I think that everybody, it's like life and death is like written in a book somewhere. And it's like, we don't get a choice in when that happens, but like we have free will in the middle. So we have to make, you know, the best of it. And I'm at peace knowing that Ryan got to live out his dream here. He got to like love and be loved and have children and like experience those really amazing, the most amazing things you can experience while you're on the earth. And he lived so beautifully while he was here. And like people live a hundred years sometimes and they don't experience any of that. So I'm at peace knowing he got to experience that while he was here. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And I asked that question, you know, cause I, I find that when, when these things happen, when loss happens and, you know, however it may happen, sometimes it, it has a reverse effect. You know, someone who has faith, it might drive you further from faith or people that have faith, it might drive you deeper into faith or in all those different variations. So it's, I'm, I was just curious to see, you know, you said you had, you've had this, you had faith prior and it, and you still remain to have that faith. It's just always intriguing to me how, when something like this happens, especially in the manner that it happened to you, which I've never heard before, it, it seems to drive people in the opposite direction and they stray further from faith, whether it's because, I don't know, is it they're, 
feel like it's a victim or they, they ask the question, how could this happen? And how could you have faith when something so terrible happens? You know, it's kind of, it's kind of contradicting. Yeah. It, it makes you, I think for some people that, you know, an event happens and they shy away from their faith, it's more, you know, they do, they feel like, well, if I do everything right, or if my loved one did everything right and he or she was kind and, you know, was a loving person, like, if there is something out there, like who would be that unjust? Um, but I think that, I think that for me, it has nothing to do with that. Death is random. We don't have any control over who gets to go and who gets to stay and for how long. And I think if we understood that more and became like, came to peace with that more that, you know, it's not personal. It's just random. I think we'd live better because we give up a lot of the control that we have on this life. Like I know for me, I had a lot of anxiety before Ryan's accident because it's weird. Like I was afraid to die. So I would get, I would get, get panic attacks sometime because I'm like, Oh my gosh, what if something happens to me? Like, what if I die? And then after his accident happened, I stopped having panic attacks because I realized like I have literally no control over any of this. Like why even bother stressing out? And it was like my body was like just gave up the ghost and was like, you don't have control. Just just live your life. Like just go after it. Like live with joy. Like live beautifully. Cause we're on this earth for such a short period of time. And so many people don't do enough with the time that they have. I think that is the worst thing that you can do. Yeah, you made me think <clears throat> it's a blend of because I want, I think that's a big part of this conversation. I think it's a blend of that conversation between, you know, like there's that letting go and like that faith aspect about, you know, what happens after, what is this all about? And you let go of that fear of death and it does relieve the stress. So it's like a blend of, you know, the existentialism and science, because what I'm trying to say is like stress is such a, is such, is like the real killer in so, in so many aspects, obviously, and in, in not exactly the case with your husband, but stress is so dangerous in the way we live our life. And so by stressing about, you know, staying healthy or living life or making these decisions that, you know, we should be cognitive of, if it's causing you stress, that is, it's not going to work. So it's going to cause you more damage, literal damage to your body. And you don't know what's going to show up down the road. So by, I love that you had that release because it's just naturally relieving stress. So it's like the perfect blend of existentialism and science in the same way that I think is only going to extend your life. Um, and I just, I just truly, I love your approach and I love the way your perspective is on this situation. And, uh, I think it's admirable on how you're handling it. And I think people are going to have different situations than what you're doing, but I think there's so much to pull from what you're saying. And having it only, you know, has been that much time since it happened. How are you? How are you today? Yeah, I'm doing, I'm so grateful. I feel really at peace. And, you know, I have, um, I found love again after losing Ryan and that has been healing in a lot of ways. And also it brings up a lot of different levels of grief um, that I, you know, you just don't expect until you're experiencing it. And it's taught me so much about myself and also the grief process. And it's just, um, you know, it's just a really amazing thing. And I'm, I'm also so grateful for my boys because they're doing so well. And that just brings me joy every day to see how well they're doing, despite, you know, what they've been through. 
And I know it's for them, it's going to be this lifelong process of, you know, without their biological father. And that's such a huge loss. And, you know, I will do everything in my power to teach them all about Ryan and how amazing he was and how much Ryan loved them. Um, even though Leo wasn't born, like Ryan loved Leo so much. Like we knew his name even before he was born and even before Ryan's accident. And, um, you know, that to me feels like a challenge because it is so hard. Like, how can I capture an essence of a person that was just so beautiful and lively and all of these things without him being here? Like, they're not going to get to experience him the way that I was able to because you know, I was able to experience him for 10 years and Jack was only able to experience his dad for three years. And that's such a loss. But, um, you know, I'm trying to look forward, forward to things. I'm trying to look forward in um, helping other people regain their lives after loss and finding joy. And I want people to know that, you know, you can become the best version of yourself after loss. And I think people have such a hard time realizing that. And I, I think that's where I get a lot of pushback sometimes with what I share because people, they don't want you to grieve. Like it's, they don't want you to see you upset, but then when you do well, they also are like, well, shouldn't you be grieving? So it's like, it's like this, you can't please anybody. (laughs) It's so hard because it's like, you can't grieve enough, but then you don't grieve enough. Yeah. Um, so it's, (laughs) it's almost impossible. And, you know, everyone has their own like magical timeline of when they feel like somebody should start like looking for love again or dating again and all of these things. And I don't know, people are just, it's always the people that have never been through something or walked in those shoes that make the comments. And I know obviously they would think differently if they, if something like this happened to them, they would hopefully realize that it's not as black and white as they make it seem. But, you know, I I think that there's, there's so many widows that follow me now and ask her advice and ask me questions. And they're so afraid to have joy because of the backlash that society brings on them. Like, it's just, it's so, it's so hard. It's so hard. So I want to be that person to almost like take all the backlash so they know it's okay, because I can take it. And I don't care. (laughs) <laughs> well, I love that. Yeah, I think that's uh, fortunately or unfortunately comes to the territory when you put yourself out there, you know, and you have a mm-hmm. you, you have a good following, so it comes with it. And in the words of Jiminy the Cricket and Pinocchio, you can't please everybody. And I think you have some great mm-hmm. intentions behind it. It's coming from a real vulnerable, real place. And I think uh, that's all that matters. And it's their journey, as they say in LA, which I hate to say. And, uh, you know, some people just got to handle it however you're saying the way they're saying. But I guarantee there's, as you say, mm-hmm. you're getting these messages, so many people that are going to relate to you. So just just keep doing what you're doing. It sounds like it's coming from the heart at the end of the day. That's that's more important. So um, I do, I want to thank you so much for sharing this. And um, before we do get out of here, if I know you just said, it sounds like I should have stopped talking, to be honest, because everything you just said was a great exit. But if there's anything you want to say, any last words per se about people finding you or any other last messages you have for anyone, feel free to kind of, you know, lead us on the way out of here. Yeah, sure. I guess I'll leave people with this. Um, You know, no matter what you go through in life, if it's a loss of a loved one or even any adversity, 
Um, there's always a choice to be made when it comes to moving forward. And I think that we just have to be brave and courageous to get uncomfortable and, you know, just feel all the things and still move forward and take action and never give up on yourself because life is so freaking short. And I want everybody to have a beautiful life because life is so damn beautiful. And you can find me anywhere on social media, Whitney Lynn Allen, that's one L L Y N. And my book comes out on Tuesday, February 21st on Amazon. Um, and that is called running in trauma stilettos. And that is all about my husband's accident and that ordeal. So you can read all about it in my book. I love it. Thank you so much. And I'll, I'll plug all the information for anyone listening. Uh, this episode will most likely come out the Friday after the book releases. So look forward to getting that out there. I'll share the link. And if you want to find it, just click in the show notes below and you can follow Whitney and uh, check out her book for sure. I know I should do the same. And I want to thank you all for tuning into another episode of Dead Talks. And more importantly, I want to thank you for being here and sharing your story. So really grateful for you being here. And uh, you know, there's going to be people that are listening that are going to pull a lot from you. So very very appreciative of you taking the time to be here. Thank you again. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right, guys. Another episode of Dead Talks. Uh, tune in next week. As always, thank you, guys. <laughs>